0: Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This is your host, Ryan Kennedy, and I have a very special guest today to dive into some strategies and tips for acquiring businesses and really, you know, achieving great cash flow and financial freedom. I really think that in the next several years, we're going to have probably the greatest opportunity of our lifetime to acquire small businesses at a discount with great terms And having the skills and insight to do that is really going to set you apart from the pack. And there there are really a couple of reasons why I've come to this conclusion, one of which is that we're entering this turbulent time in the economy. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's likely going to be some financial strain and, and a lot of fear over the next couple of years. And I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's pretty evident to me that things are not going to be the way they were the last several years, where it's really easy to make money and asset prices are just soaring. And the other reason I think this is gonna be a massive opportunity to acquire small businesses is that we have this entire generation of baby boomers who are hitting retirement age, many of which own small businesses that their kids don't wanna take over. And when you combine people who are trying to get out of their business during a time when there's a lot of economic uncertainty and, and instability, well, now you have the perfect formula For opportunity. So I brought on James Richardson, who's an expert in this arena. James owns an investment firm called Hardwood Capital Partners that focuses on acquiring and growing small and medium sized businesses. Uh, James started out in real estate investing. He grew his portfolio to 33 rental properties by the time he was 35. And then he made the transition to buying businesses and has averaged one acquisition per quarter. And has a combined portfolio revenue of 12 million per year oh, and over 40 employees this dude knows what he's doing so i brought him on to share with all of us and honestly i'm always stoked for episodes like this because i have a personal interest in getting deeper into this space and i love people bringing up bringing people on to pick their brains so so james welcome to the show
1: brother thank you very much ryan and as i said to you just before we started um it's a privilege to be on your show today i i listened to your podcast as I said, my wife and I are getting more into the kind of functional medicine and uh, fitness space. So yeah, it's great to be here today and talk to you. Um, you, you what you said was exactly right. Um, we've got an amazing opportunity, I think, at this particular point in time. Um, before I get into that, I'll just do a quick rewind and, and do a little bit of my bio. I did get start from an investing perspective in real estate. Um, that kind of provided a bit of a foundation. However, I had a a career in kind of financial turnaround and restructuring that's actually what brought me to the states I uh, I spent 12 and a half years uh, working in the big four so for one of the big four and um, similar to some of the other guests you uh, had on I think in the past was in a situation where I had a very good career kind of golden handcuff situation Um, but over the Years that had gone by, I'd been slowly building up these real estate investments and just thought, man, I could use my business consulting experience with my investing that I've been doing in the real estate arena, mm-hmm. combine them. And I just see this huge opportunity ahead of us for buying small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, if you look at the stats, um, some of it is very anecdotal because there's big numbers being thrown around and I don't know how they're collated, but you know, between 10 and $30 trillion in assets are going to be transferring from the baby boomer generation to uh, the younger generations you know, over the next decade. And that's huge. And there are stats out there that say you know, 19% of baby boomers own a business. And then if you drill in further than that, it, it is thought that only three out of 10 actually only ever get round to selling their business. And the reason for that is a lot of these businesses are on the smaller side. And so they fit under the threshold of a typical private equity investment, mm-hmm. and so there is this opportunity for—it's called different things, like micro PE, maybe. I mean, I just call my outfit Harvard Capital a um, a small investment group, to be honest. But I am trying to go deep in buying uh, high-quality, long-standing businesses that have a great history with a you know a passionate founder who has built something really amazing. And they're at the end of their career and they're just thinking, what do I do with this? So far, we've we've done four uh, acquisitions in the last year. And these guys that we're meeting, they're amazing people. And and some of them are just thinking about winding down their business because they don't know that what they've built is an asset. They can sell it to someone like me, um, get a nice retirement for their family. But also, um, if you sell to the right party, you can have a buyer who actually cares um, we'll try and honor the legacy of what's been built, continue to employ the people that are working in the business. And, um, what my partner and I are doing are trying to use our um historical experience, you know, and mine in business consulting, and my partner's very deep in certain types of operations to actually grow these businesses. So, it, it kind of works in several ways. There's so much opportunity out there, we're essentially looking for businesses that we think we can double in the next like three-ish years that's kind of our metric in our head Um, it's not a hard and fast rule but it's not only just taking over these businesses and buying them but then in addition there's all this growth potential as well I think totally man I love this and I had heard similar stats as well just kind
0: of I'm not nearly as knowledgeable about uh, this whole sector as you are but just listening to people like Cody Sanchez and others that are becoming more popular on YouTube and social media talk about how There's so many profitable businesses that don't even know they could sell. So they just close their doors Mm -hmm. and they don't get any exit. They don't get any type of, you know, financial kickback. And they just hope they could live on their nest egg for retirement. And that's a beautiful thing for opportunity because then you're creating a win-win scenario, even if you do acquire these small businesses at a good price. Or the other thing I wanted you to outline is really negotiating terms where you don't have to come Mm -hmm. to the table with cash, if you're buying a business for, let's say, uh, 500 grand, you don't have to have that sitting in your bank account and you don't even necessarily have to get a small business loan. You could even negotiate seller financing with these business owners where you pay them over the course of X number of years. and they're stoked because again, they weren't expecting anything necessarily. And they're also stoked because like you mentioned, you're able to allow their this this business they built, their baby, to continue to grow and evolve and provide value to the world. So they, from a, just a fulfillment standpoint, I'm sure want to see that happen. Uh, so you're, you know, it just creates this tremendous opportunity. So uh, I want to get a little more background on you. So um, what type of businesses does your firm invest in? Is there a specific sector or are you just like anything that numbers work will we'll go
1: for it? I'm um at, given we're one year into you know doing this I'm open to looking at anything and I've looked at lots of different businesses in the last year I think our our niche and where we're kind of getting to is we like traditionally unglamorous businesses we don't like shiny widgets and the latest fads and following fashions we like businesses that have been around for a long time um these are often uh businesses that don't even necessarily have websites but they just have kind of long standing relationships with their customers Um, built on relationship and trust. And so we have um, a retaining wall business. We had a a trucking company that is now rolled into the retaining wall business, a a commercial roofing business. And we've just uh, acquired about three weeks ago, a manufacturing business, um, and that one's out of state. So they're kind of, I, I I like to kind of say dirty, unglamorous businesses. I need to come up with a you know a a nice way to kind of summarize that but yeah
0: boring businesses
1: yeah boring businesses um, that's that's definitely Cody Sanchez's uh, kind of catchphrase I'm trying to come up with one that I can use for us but that's honestly from looking at all these different businesses that is where we seem to have a lot of success so far and also with my consulting experience I spend a lot of time in manufacturing and some of these other business arenas like that so I think it suits my skill set and my business partner is very deep in construction as well he's had businesses in the past and exited them in that space so it just suits our skill set well i think got
0: it got it no and that makes sense because it's i would imagine there's less competition when looking at these versus like you mentioned trying to acquire internet-based businesses that are you know really popular apps or whatever it might be that might have a little more allure to them uh, opposed to a retaining wall business which i like everyone needs a
1: good wall you know, that's, exactly. that's not a bad
0: idea.
1: So in, in Tennessee, um, Nashville, as you know, has boomed over the last several years. So all of the good land that's left pretty much is very hilly. So mm-hmm. I just think there's a huge need here for, for that kind of business. Totally, um, totally. One, I just want to touch on one thing that you mentioned. You said about structuring these deals and the sellers getting a really good deal as well. One thing that I think puts people off who are buying businesses or thinking about buying businesses is, as you said, wow! I don't have half a million sitting in my bank. Well, um, if you are a seller and you are towards retirement age, it's actually not beneficial to get a huge lump sum of money in one go. For sure. And so, what we found is that a lot of sellers actually prefer to do seller financing, take their, you know, their their lump sum over a number of years. It allows them to work with their CPA and work out good tax strategies for how they can reduce their tax bill um legally of course but it's just much more beneficial than taking a huge lump sum up front and so that's actually a a huge benefit to us and you might say yes but i still need 20% down we've actually one of our acquisitions was 100% financed Mm -hmm. uh, and we broke up the financing into two tranches there was one longer term amortizing note and then a deferred down payment which is a down payment, but we were allowed up to 18 months to pay it. And so what we're doing we're cash flowing that down payment each month. Yep. So um, again, it's, of course, we're taking on risk in doing this, but it is possible to be creative, um, especially with people who are retiring because um, money is not the most important thing. It's not the most important thing anyway, at any point, uh, you know, in your life, but especially once you've spent your whole life building something, you've probably done quite well out of it. That's right. Um, at that point in time, these guys, they care about their employees and the future of their business. They don't want to see the thing they've built just crash into the ground. So actually, as long as you're providing that security, often there's a lot of leeway to work with the seller and find something that works for us as the buyer and them as the
0: seller. 100% dude. And a lot of these people aren't super savvy investors, so they don't really know what to do with a big lump sum anyways. And as someone who's been hit by some pretty steep capital gains tax bills myself, I totally respect the whole tax advantage because I, I was really opened up to the seller financing in real estate um where I locked down a really good deal um about a year ago now on a property that was a hundred percent seller financed with zero mm-hmm. down and zero percent interest, which is you know it was oh uh, awesome. Great oh, work. Yeah, good okay, ne- I did get some lessons skills. from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I negotiated that one really well, but it really does one of the things you mentioned was you know, there was some risk involved and I'm curious, Do I'm sure it varies based on the deal, but are you typically required to put up some sort of personal collateral or is the business itself the collateral where if things go south, the seller would then just take back ownership of the business?
1: One benefit is we don't have liens on our personal assets, like the home I'm sitting in right now, like you would under an SBA, uh, which is you know, a government loan to help you acquire businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, under that scenario you have liens on pretty much everything so i i have guaranteed with my entity um but uh we don't we're not putting up any additional collateral i mean there's space in the business assets to go after if if we were to default you probably could go after the businesses and and kind of any space based on existing financing on the equipment and, and what the equipment's worth um but there's no additional collateral that we've really put up for these Got it.
0: Got it. Because that, that's one concern I can see coming up with seller financing is if, let's say, real estate's a little bit different because you have a hard asset. But let's say, you know, a business owner is going to sell me their company. Let's just say it's a I don't know, a plumbing company. And I say, hey, seller financing and the collateral is if I default on a payment, you take the business back. But then their mm-hmm. concern would be, what if this guy runs it into the ground and then what I'm taking back has no inherent value or bad reputation or something where, it's not the best collateral because it's uh, a fluctuating asset or it can be it can be easily damaged um so that's where I would assume there would be some sort of other type of collateral you know personal or otherwise
1: I, I would um say I agree let me think about how to answer that I would point to a track record so I know we're a year into this but the businesses that we have acquired have grown so Um, as you know businesses as they get larger they become more valuable because the multiple that you apply to the earnings grows and so the business if you grow to three to four million it's not just that additional piece on the earnings side it's actually the the multiple increases you know Um, and so yes the 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 seller could take the business back i would say based on the track record of what we've done that the businesses would be more valuable at the point they were taken back but i mean this yeah. is all theoretical, and I yeah. hope that never happens. Hasn't happened, and I hope it never happens. I, I don't, don't believe it will. Sure. Um, but you're, but you're right. It's, it's sensible to think about it. I think one thing as well. Re- rewinding a couple of things you mentioned about uh, what our niche is. One thing I failed to mention about why I also like some of these unglamorous, unglamorous businesses is that the multiples you can buy into these businesses at are much more favorable than. You know, SaaS companies and these kind of glamorous, um, glamorous companies often they trade at multiples of revenue, whereas you can buy a manufacturing, a small manufacturing company for less than three times EBITDA, mm. uh, EBITDA is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortisation, um, and is typically a measure of core profitability within the business. And often you take, you work out EBITDA and you apply a, a multiple to that to get to the purchase price. But the the purchase prices of these kind of unglamorous unglamorous businesses are less than some of these more sexy businesses that a lot of people go after. Yeah, make makes total sense. So I want to I want to start at square one for
0: for myself and for people listening to this. Like step one is you find a business owner who wants to sell you their business, right? And while there are some online websites, you know, like you know, listing services like uh, Biz Buy Sell, I think is one, and I'm sure there's others I don't even know about, but it seems that once a business is on these public platforms, it's probably not a steal of a deal or it would have already been scooped up. At least that's the way my mind works is I think like, you know, houses on the MLS, it's a lot harder to find a, a deal on real estate opposed to like an off market listing where you have a relationship with the seller and you can work out a, a deal that's much more advantageous than when you're competing with this whole other marketplace of buyers. And I think you probably share a similar thing as far as finding off market Uh, businesses to buy but I'm curious like dude is there like a yellow pages you look at like how do you (laughs) how do you source the leads to even know like hey this is a business owner that I can cold call or I guess I'm just curious to hear about your lead gen process
1: yeah it's I think the way I think about it is similar to what you just outlined is that I prefer not to go on market I think um, for the reasons you already outlined I prefer not to go for on market but in addition to that Once something's on market, you generally have a broker involved. The broker will be whispering in the seller's ear saying, you know, don't do seller financing. You don't want to do that. When actually that can work really well for the sellers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just not in the best interest of the broker. They often like to get their their money up front and things like that. So yes, I definitely prefer off market. We found great success speaking to local contacts. So we started this buying local. We're now buying out of state, but you know, Who's your CPA? Who's your insurance agent? Who are the other, um, who's your lawyer? Who's your attorney? You know, who are the people providing business services in the local area? Who you have a really good relationship, who you can get a really warm intro? These are the guys that know, you know, our CPA, for example, he he knows which of his clients are likely to be thinking about retiring in the next three to five years. <clears throat> and Excuse they were me. actually... Um,
0: they're actually willing to share that information with you. I would have assumed it would have been like kind of client privilege, confidential
1: type stuff. It, it, they don't, um, they won't give us names. It's often like, Hey, I think I might know someone. I'm not going to give you the confidential information. Let me go away, have a conversation. And then they'll come back and be like, Hey, I spoke to the person Got they're it. up for meeting you. Let's set up a, a meeting. So yeah, it's, there's definitely no sharing of uh, confidential information, but there is, I don't know if it's just the South, like friendly, very relationship driven, mm-hmm. you know, hey, let me go and have a few conversations. I'll get back with you. That's worked well. Um, As you know, I'm trying to now build a bit of an online presence, starting pretty fresh and from scratch in 2023, end of 2022. Um, You know, most people have these brands that have been going for several years, but I'm starting that now because I also think if I put out helpful content to help other people buy businesses, because this opportunity is huge. Like I don't want to start like, um, you know, clinging all these deals to myself, there's so much opportunity out there for everyone. Mm. So if I can help people do that for themselves, I think more deals will probably find me as well. So I'm thinking that will be another good avenue to find deals as things go. But as it stands, we've managed to do one every quarter. And we still have some deals in the pipeline that we're looking at right now. So at the moment, there's no signs of that stopping. But I am looking to kind of spread the message a bit more and get myself out there a bit more uh, just to make sure that that hopper is always full of, of opportunities. But I would challenge your listeners. If you think, oh, that's all well and good and it's fine for you. I mean, just try it. Just speak to people you know. It's amazing what happens when you put yourself out there. I mean, I think being from a a kind of a career where I wasn't so public with maybe my real estate investing, I I I didn't have the right mindset. So once I Hands in my notice and left and set up my own investment firm, just actually starting to put those messages out there. It's amazing how much people rally around you, help you get you contacts. It, it, it's it been amazing to see. And I I would challenge your listeners to do the same.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a good point you bring up, James, because people think the same thing in real estate where it's like, oh, I'm never going to find this like grand slam of a deal off market. Like how am I ever going to find these sellers? And I don't want to be cold calling leads and knocking on doors and doing all that like grunt work to, kind of get Mm -hmm. an opportunity to have 1% of people actually work out Um, but on the flip side when you go into with a different mindset and you just start putting some feelers out and creating these opportunities for yourself amazing things happen like the dots connect and I've, I've witnessed it firsthand and I could see that being the case here with the business side of things too um, so contacting CPAs or attorneys sounds like a great recommendation, online presence, and just kind of putting feelers out in your own network, maybe meetups, masterminds, things like that. What mm-hmm. else have you found, or are you exploring, uh, beyond that list to, to generate any, any leads?
1: I was just, uh, making a couple of notes here. Cause I was just thinking like, how could I, you know, help people the most in terms of people listening to this podcast who are interested in doing this. One thing I I did fail to mention as well on the last point is, if you are thinking about doing this, another thing I would encourage people to do is think about partnerships. I think a lot of people are are scared to go into partnerships because, you know, what if things all go wrong? Um, However, when I was working a very demanding career, I still found time to do a bit of real estate investing. And the way I did most of it was through partnerships with, you know, close friends. And it was just the compounding impact of, of of doing that over time, you immediately look back. It's like you said, you connect the dots, but you look back and you go, wow, I've come so far. And actually I think in a good partnership, um, what's the phrase Like the whole is, is much greater than the sum of its parts. And so I would say, um, if you are considering looking into this, look at who's around you as well and maybe do some of these deals, maybe a small one together to get, to get going and to get moving. Cause you got to start moving to see any sort of compounding or growth over time. I think a lot of people can get analysis paralysis, definitely real estate, also true in the business world. And even more so maybe because it feels like much more scary to buy a business, you know. Um, It's not a hard asset. There's actually people involved with who have jobs and their lives depend on it and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it definitely requires more of a skill set, I think. And um, obviously, it depends on the sector and the business that you're buying. But the partnership advice is very very uh, good advice, because a lot of people also look at it like, man, I, I don't want to split up the upside, you know, like I'm only going to be getting half of the of the of the benefit here. But the way I've always looked at it, I think there's a phrase is like, I'd rather have a slice of watermelon than one grape. Yeah. Like when you get one slice of the pie, but it's a huge pie that's better than just having like a tiny piece of candy. So, right. so that's where it's like, you got to look at it from the bigger picture and then the value you get, like you said, from learning from these things and then having other people that you're working with so you're not going at it solo, which can be a little daunting and overwhelming, I think is really, really sage sage advice for people to, to take into consideration. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose the biggest benefit would, or the the biggest hurdle I see as I'm looking to get into this space is acquiring, you know, some lead flow uh, of finding, Mm -hmm. you know, just beyond anyone that's listening. If you have a business or know someone with a business that wants to sell, you let me know. I'd love to speak with them, but beyond, (laughs) beyond stuff like this, I don't know exactly like how to um, you know, I I am going to contact my CPA and attorney and see what they say. Um, But it seems like there's opportunity just in lead gen kind of like you could wholesale, uh, real estate. Like I could see mm-hmm. you being able to get into a business deal where you have an opportunity and someone like yourself would pay a, you know, a, a very handsome assignment fee if the numbers worked and it was a really mm-hmm. advantageous deal. So you don't even have to operate it. You don't even have to know how to run the business. You could literally just find deals that are you know, awesome home runs and then come to someone like yourself, James, and be like, hey, you know, cut me a big check and I'll mm-hmm. assign you this deal.
1: And even another just thinking off the top of my head, if you if it's something you want to get into, but again, nervous or, or scared to make that first step, find a killer deal, bring it to to you or to me or or to both of us together. We close on the business and then you retain a very small piece of equity. That's right. And it's not necessarily even about the equity because I'm sure just for finding a deal, it's not going to be, you know, 50% of a deal. But what that gives you is a glimpse into how it works. And that can be invaluable. That could probably provide the confidence to then go out and do it yourself. I think um, also when when you're thinking about these deals, if you are like kind of trying to build up the courage to go ahead and do this, one thing I'd advise against is buying a business that's too small. Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke to a friend of mine recently who was looking at moving into this space. And I think what he'd earmarked as his kind of buy box was a business that would essentially be a job for him and so yeah, that was the one thing I said to him, I was like, awesome, you're, you're going to crush it, you're going to be amazing, but think a little bit bigger, um, try and buy a business that you could then hire a CEO or a company manager into, um, to allow you to kind of work on the business or over the business and not in the day-to-day, because then you're switching a a W-2 for, a, you know, running a stressful small business, so you don't <laughs> yeah. want to do that. No, no, um, not that's not how sense. I'm trying to structure it anyway. Yeah, I always... I always uh, tell
0: everyone I optimize my life for low stress. So I want to get into <laughs> something that's not going to be stressful because that's more right. important to me than than the financial upside and knowing I can sleep well at night and not have these things hovering over my mind twenty four seven. If uh, you know the business has a lot of holes to fill and a lot of moving parts and a lot of like dysfunction, uh, that's not always ideal. But okay, I so. Did-
1: and I was just going to say, and it w- it just wouldn't work for you in your situation as well, because you're so passionate about, you know, helping people lead, lead healthier lives, better lives, you know, be more fit and, and like to have that cloud hanging over you the whole time or that weight on your shoulders, it's not not worth any kind of money that that business would bring in because it would just derail you from what you feel like your mission is, you know. 100%,
0: 100%. And, you know, one of the things I think you're doing or it sounds like you're doing that I think is also uh, pretty pretty genius move is, you know, acquiring multiple businesses and similar verticals. And I know a couple of people personally who are doing this in the real estate space where they have a real estate brokerage, you know, with a bunch of agents working under the, the company. And then they also acquire a title company and maybe they right. acquire an escrow company or they acquire a home inspection company. And, and these things that where the businesses feed each other and it becomes this self-perpetuating process where like, as you get one new customer, now you can have value from that one lead for four or five or six different businesses because a home buyer needs all of these services uh, or a home seller so it, it, it it's really smart to do it that way it sounds like you're kind of doing that with your with your construction business to some extent i imagine
1: yeah there are different ways you can add value i mean just growing a business yes but as you start to then uh buy similar businesses you kind of create a platform um, um, that's kind of the private equity language for, um, a group of companies that all are similar, similar in similar verticals or can kind of feed business to each other. So I won't share on the podcast, but we're actively exploring how some of our existing businesses can help each other grow, which is a great thing. And then the mm-hmm. other thing you can do from a cost perspective is as you grow, you may find that you can create a shared infrastructure around the companies that you own, uh, which really makes your back office more efficient. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you know letting people go necessarily. It just means as you grow, you might find that you have capacity or an expert in company X that can help company Y, and you can structure days, their days, you know, effectively so they can help multiple companies at the same time. Yeah. Um. So that's super valuable. We we don't really plan to ever sell our group of companies. We just love the mission of actually helping these people retire and also keeping their business going it's sometimes referred to as permanent equity rather than private equity i mean we can never say we'll never sell you know you you just can't make promises like that but we are building for the long run but i would say building that shared infrastructure around a group of companies does make the whole more valuable and even if you don't want to sell it's nice to know that you're increasing the value of you know the assets you hold yeah Yeah. Well, I want
0: to get into some specifics on analyzing. Let's say you do find a deal and you are pursuing a business. How do you analyze it? But before we get there, one question. Are there certain industries or types of businesses you advise people just kind of steer clear of? I would imagine like restaurants would maybe fall into this category (laughs) and like things that people see and they're like, oh, that would be awesome. But Mm -hmm. you're like, dude, this is an operational nightmare. It's not worth it.
1: I have a friend who's asked me to potentially be involved in a restaurant idea he's got uh, in future, but that would be more of a passion project. So Mm -hmm. outside of like a actual passion project for, you know, some reason, I think I would avoid restaurants personally. Um, I don't think at the moment I'd be interested in any any tech companies or SaaS companies just because the amounts that they trade at. we looked at an e-commerce business a while ago and, um, they're just very expensive and it's really important to us the terms that we can use to structure a deal and and to get into the deal well. And for us, it's not worth that risk. And there are private equity funds, lower middle market private equity funds that specialize in those kind of companies. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do a SaaS business or anything tech related, probably at this stage. And yeah, actually it's funny you say restaurants. I would say restaurants, generally speaking, personally, I, I wouldn't go near those. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So, so when
0: it comes to analyzing a business, um, you know, I want to go through some fundamentals and so then, you know, maybe we can also steer people to a course or some of your work or something that you, you know, where they could learn more. Cause so I'm sure this is a much bigger topic that we can, you know, then we can cover in a, uh, interview like this, but are there any, uh, just basics that you think are important, like uh, key things to look at when you're initially analyzing a business, uh, if you get a lead?
1: Yeah, there's four things that I think of um, that I always tell people to think about when they start looking at a potential business. The first one um, is financial statements, request financial statements, always request them in, in Excel, because there's so much analysis you want to do, and it helps you see trends much better. But you really want to get, you know, three years of all financial statements, which is the profit and loss, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, statement of cash flows. Most small businesses do not have a statement of cash flows, but you should ask Anyway, just in case they have one. I think that provides a lot of value and and but generally you don't get that in small businesses. So once you've got financial statements, you really need to spend some time in Excel asking yourself what are the numbers telling me. You need to analyze year-over-year trends, all the way down from from, from revenue through the cost of goods sold through to the overheads. Um, honestly, as much details as you've got, you really just want to build up a picture of. Uh, you know, what's going on in the business? Is it lining up with what the seller's telling me, why they want to sell? Um, You know, it's it's amazing what things can come out of the woodwork when you start analyzing these things. And this isn't necessarily the final diligence that you do before you sign on the dotted line and close in the business. This is the the pre-work. So what I like Mm. to do, I I like to, uh, I think of myself as a thinker and a feeler. So I do the thinking up front and I get these financials and I try and work out what are the numbers telling me? What do I see? And then once I've done the PL, I do the balance sheet as well. And so I start to build up a picture. But then I want to actually get on site, meet the seller. Generally, I don't meet the employees because it's actually confidential and you don't want to disrupt the employees too much when the potential suitors coming around who mm-hmm. might be acquiring the business. But you know, meet the meet the seller, get to know his or her story, and, and just kind of feel out again any red flags, any strange things here, but really. The first thing is getting those financial statements. Um, I covered the PL on the balance sheet. You obviously want to look at the amount of current assets, current liabilities, you know, are things upside down? Is the business solvent? How much cash has the business got? How is that trended over time? Are there any worrying trends in accounts receivable or accounts payable? What is the long-term debt in the in the long-term liabilities section of the balance sheet? And again, just build up a picture. That can mm-hmm. sound scary if you're not from a and a business background or you know chartered accountant or anything like that. But honestly, I think again, maybe lean on someone else, bring someone into the deal who's an expert in that area if you if you're lacking confidence. But honestly, if you're just starting to look at the line items, you can build up a picture. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's just what are some strange trends that I can use to ask more questions to find out more about the business. After you've looked at the financial statements, I then tell people to work out EBITDA. EBITDA isn't actually on the face of the PL. You have to extract some things from the bottom line profit in order to get to EBITDA. And what you're essentially stripping out are the non-cash items of depreciation and amortization. They're not factored into EBITDA because they're kind of a, an accounting overlay that you can... I'm not saying people do manipulate, but you can manipulate depreciation a certain amount. You do need to do capex planning separately, um, but... For, as it relates to calculating EBITDA, you strip it out. And then you also strip out interest and tax. The reason you strip out interest to get to EBITDA is that interest is very much uh, dependent on the capital structure of the business. And if you're acquiring the business, the capital structure will likely change. Yeah. So, again, don't factor that in to get to EBITDA. And then tax is, again, based on the jurisdiction the business is operating in, all businesses have to pay some sort of tax. And also, it depends on where it's operating. So just to get to EBITDA, strip it out, it's not not relevant right now, and get to that number. You'll often find that when you come up with your EBITDA number, the seller has a much different view of EBITDA, and it's much higher, because they're always trying to push it higher. Because once you get to that EBITDA number, you then apply the multiple and get to the valuation, typically. And so you have to really watch what the seller is stripping out of you know your bottom line profit to get to EBITDA they'll try and take out exceptional items that they ran through the PL. maybe they had a some personal expenses here and there that all of these things they will try and pull out and get to a much higher number and then apply the multiple to. so I tell people to look at financial statements first EBITDA second and then um, I always tell people just to think seriously about the sector or the industry that the business is in I have a rule where I don't I don't mind investing into a, an industry where I don't have a huge amount of knowledge, but it is absolutely essential that either my business partner does have that knowledge or I'm a partner with someone who's say the company manager or a small equity, you know, component investor in the deal that is an expert. Like I don't yeah. want to just be completely blind, but I think if you rule out anything that you haven't touched before, then it just limits your opportunity so much. So just yeah. think seriously about um, the sector that you're potentially going to invest in. And then the final thing I tell people to think about is the structure. So we touched on it a bit. Structure, there's an A and a B here. So what the A part is how do you structure the acquisition? So is there a down payment involved? If so, how are you going to come up with that? Do you need to bring in an, an investor? Um, then, you know, seller financing, We generally don't do any bank financing at all. The last deal we did, we did bring in a small piece of bank financing, but that structure of acquisition is important. And then finally, the B part of the structure is, what does the organization look like when you you buy it? Um, Some people want to buy a small business and be the CEO. Their dream is to leave their W-2. They want to buy a business they're passionate about, be the CEO and not acquire multiple businesses. And that's great. If you want to do that, you know, know that going in and plan for it accordingly. If you're doing my model where we're buying these businesses and we're trying to buy a lot of related businesses and create this platform model, then you need to have identified who could be the company manager. Sometimes it's someone that exists within the business already. We've had that happen. And sometimes you have to hire someone, a rock star externally. We've had that happen as well. Uh, So there's no right or wrong. The world of small business acquisition, there's no rules uh, mm. I love the creative aspect of it, but you just got to think about all those things. So um, I know there's a lot there. I think in terms of material, I am not currently aware or part of any program that provides these um, materials. So I'm, I'm working on something that would be some sort of course or or some sort of materials I can give to people to help people do this. I think some of it comes naturally to me just because i spent so long in my career 12 and a half years reading financial statements every day and looking at cash flow forecasts that i don't think too much about balance sheets and and things like that it kind of comes naturally to me Mm -hmm. and so i i think people shouldn't be scared if if they're overwhelmed by it but i think they maybe just need a simple step-by-step guide of what to look for these are the potential red flags and, and things like that so that was a, mon- a long monologue. So hopefully I answered yeah. a few questions there.
0: No, you definitely did. Um, And it answered most of the next question I was gonna ask you, which was like, how to build your buy box? Because this is something I'm familiar with when it comes to real estate. And I imagine with businesses, it's something kind of similar. Um, And it sounds like you, you kind of go somewhat broad. Is it not a more advantageous strategy to have a specific niche and say, I'm buying in this market? These type of businesses, this price range, and have like your more buy box more condensed versus having it kind of a
1: little all over. I think I think over time it will become more niche um, because we relied to start on referrals from people we know locally. We can we didn't know you know what type of businesses we're going to get introduced to, so mm-hmm. we just looked at what came our way. Um, but I think over time, especially if you start to do, um, a roll-up strategy, you do want to be more niche. So in that example, you say you've got an HVAC business, you might buy one, which becomes your platform. And then you essentially roll, find as many other HVAC businesses as you can roll them up into one master brand. Yeah. You might want to do that. We haven't done that yet. Um, I think if you're going out to sellers and saying you're continuing their legacy and then you buy the business and change your name and all of that, it that that's not right so um yeah. you have to just be clear with the seller what your intentions are but that is that would be a, a good way to niche down and to create huge value is to do that roll-up strategy we may do that with other things in in the future but for now we've just tried to find good local people to kick things off and um at this i think in this point in time we're, we may hit 15 million of revenue this year which is super exciting for our portfolio businesses but Given the opportunity in front of us, we're trying to grow that up to um, a portfolio of businesses that do over $100 million a year in annual revenue, which is super exciting. And um, I know as we progress down the journey, maybe our strategy is tweaked here and there, or we try different things here and there. But there's Mm -hmm. all these different opportunities. And uh, yeah, some people choose the niche. And for the moment, we're kind of being generalists. Got it. Got it. And then one thing that came to
0: me while you were describing finding like, an operator or, you know, having a CEO in place versus not is I think for people starting out, you can still always um, try and negotiate. um, You know, I don't know the proper term for this, but where the owner stays on board for three months or six months or a year uh, and continues to work in the business who can then train you up or train your operator and your new hire up in a lot of these things that you may not be an expert in. Um, and kind of have that built into the contract. I know that's somewhat of a a standard practice.
1: Yes, that's a great point. Uh, That is very common and we have done that. Um, We generally try and put a contract in place where we can have the seller stay on for up to X months Mm -hmm. and we try and make that X, you know, maybe six, at least six months, sometimes longer depending on the complexity of the business. But what we often find is, once the seller has spent concentrated time with the new company manager that you know those six or 12 months whatever it is, are not necessary, but it's useful to have a contract in place for that on the front end. Um, so that is that is a very good point. And then another thing you can do on that is you can tie a small amount of the purchase price into what's called an earnout. So you say, you know the seller mm-hmm. can stay on for a short period of time and just to make sure the business doesn't completely bomb when we take over cuz you know the risk on the buyer side and a fear is oh all the customers are going to realize that their favorite guys left yeah. and they just take all their business elsewhere and you're left holding nothing yeah. apart from a really big piece of debt that you've got to pay down on so you know there are obviously risks here so you can tie a small piece of the purchase price into an earnout and you say something like um you can some people use this Badly, in my opinion, like you can tie earnouts to, to profit and things like that, which can be easily manipulated through the financial statements. I like to use an earnout as a, a base level kind of layer of security for me as a buyer. So let's say the business did $3.2 million, theoretical business did $3.2 million last year in revenue. I say we need to ensure, you know, we we reserve $100,000 for one year from now which will pay you if the business does not fall under three million in revenue and then another 100k the year after that if it doesn't drop below you know three three million again something like that where it's just like protecting you from a big business completely bombing
0: yep yep that makes sense i like that um awesome and then uh you know i know you outlined a couple things for industries you steer clear of but uh what are some of the top industries you're really going for? It sounds obviously like you've been acquiring some construction companies and manufacturing. Uh, are there other sectors that you're like, dude, I think this is ripe for opportunity and a good place to people for people to start who
1: want to get into this type of thing. I do like service type businesses in a way. Like I, I think we're going to push more into that space and because we have a bit of a background in real estate as well things like our things that are like home services like hvac that we already mentioned mm-hmm. um that is super interesting to me i think we started construction because we had the opportunity to and my business partner is uh, got a great knowledge in construction i've got a lot of other experience basically pretty much every industry that is not construction i've been a part of so moving slowly into more manufacturing I've done some automotive in the past. Um, I've dabbled in, in health and some pharma type stuff as well. So there's a whole variety of things, but I think home services is big. Um, I love businesses that aren't super concentrated in maybe like niche assets where you've got a lot of money tied up in kind of slow moving assets. Mm. Um, so yeah. We'll we'll continue to explore what comes our way, but I think home services is big. Um, and if any of your listeners have any interesting opportunities, happy to you know, try and take a look and try and help. But we're basically open to anything still at this point, one year into the journey. I like it. I like it. Well,
0: I want to I want to wrap up talking a little bit about um, your journey with with uh, financial freedom. You know, this is a big uh, big topic for people because obviously not having to do things you don't want to do is a great it's a beautiful thing. And allowing yes. you to live your life the way you want is wonderful. But one thing I've heard thrown around is this concept, uh, so, so this concept of fire, which is mm-hmm. financial independence, retire early. Uh, which, you know, I've been fortunate to achieve that in my own life, but you know, it's a difference between these people who think of fire like, Lemme Get a nest egg that can produce, you know, 40 grand a year in, in dividends or returns and then just live super, you know, super below, you know, your means. Uh, mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem like a, a very abundant life to me. I think that's a
1: lean fire, isn't it? I think it's good. Yeah,
0: <laughs> very lean. And then there's this fat fire, which is like the concept of like, dude, I want to have like, you know, eight figures in, in wealth that's mm-hmm. cranking out enough cash flow and enough uh, returns on my, on my money and on my investments that I could live, you know, this amazing life. Um, so I just wanted to hear like kind of your philosophy behind that and some of your uh, kind of your journey towards that
1: yeah no it's a topic that is close to my heart in a way because um, I come from an absolutely amazing family uh, you know so grateful for all the blessings but I think in terms of finances I kind of grew up in um, you know in the countryside in England it's a beautiful part of the world honestly but Um, The amount of money that exists in that kind of space where I grew up compared to what I've seen now through my professional career and now being Mm -hmm. an entrepreneur in America is vastly different. And so, you know, I I remember being a teenager and reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is a very popular book, um, talking about how people can buy assets and slowly over time, those assets are kind of like small small seeds that you plant that over time start to produce these small amounts of cash flow. And I think I am maybe an example of someone who didn't really believe it and didn't think it was possible for me to actually ever achieve financial independence. A a small side note there is people talk about fire. I I love work, so I don't really Mm. want to retire. But financial independence was huge for me. And so I think just over time, My investing career with real estate started in London with a good friend of mine. And in our friendship group, really, there was just myself and this one other friend who was really into real estate. And we wanted to buy something. We were living in London at the time and we just, no way we could afford anything like just so expensive and no, no family money to speak of, you know, just to, to buy our way into stuff. So we, we managed to pull, I think at the time I had a, slightly better income and he had slightly more savings. But we really we did some sums. And if we pulled it together, we could buy a two-bedroom flat in an up and coming part of London, which you know it's very up and coming. Mm-hmm. Um and so we we bought this place and we moved in together. And we actually, uh, I don't know if I should say it on a podcast, I broadcast it to the world, but we basically shared a bedroom mm-hmm. and then Airbnb'd the other bedroom out. Um so we had like a mattress on the floor and shared a bedroom which you know, we'd laugh about it now, but that's how yeah. we got started. And we we did it enough that we weren't able to sa- save up a down payment on the second place. And just slowly over time, you know, at that point, I still didn't think financial independence was possible, but that was back in 2014. So if you then roll forward the clock, last year went in my career. It was quite a pivotal time where I was had to decide, do I go all in on my career in the turnaround and restructuring world? or do I take this leap out and do something which I know I always wanted to do, which was to try and buy my own businesses and grow them. Mm-hmm. Like actually the compounding impact from 20- 2014 through to 2022 of just chipping away, buying rentals and trying to be creative and find ways to do it. So over, over the years we've done new construction homes. Um, we found a way to, to kind of buy old homes, split the land up to free up a new piece of land free and clear essentially and build a brand new house on it mm-hmm. and then unlike a lot of people because we had day jobs we were building and keeping and so over the time we we're just able to to keep these like pretty good assets um, a lot of our rentals are not um, like super cheap rentals are actually in quite nice areas of say Nashville some of them are mm-hmm. um, but then if you layer in the new construction with some of the short-term rental stuff we've done with some of the um, long-term rentals where you you know, you, you initially it's only maybe $100 of profit every month. It's like nothing, you know, but then you ride that up and then rates drop, you know, as you know, a few years ago. So you quickly yep. refinance everything at 3%. And, you know, all of a sudden your, your margin grows and that seed you planted sends into much more. And I, I think the reason I'm passionate about it is I didn't believe financial freedom or financial independence was possible for me. And it's nice to be sitting here today to say that allowed me The real estate created this platform and then with the first business acquisition, I was able to top up enough that we could live comfortably off the investments that we own. And then since then, we've acquired several more companies and it's just been really nice to be in this position. And that's kind of why I preach it. Ultimately, money is not the most important thing. Um, You know, I have a strong Christian faith I my family is so important to me, my friends and the relationships around me. But um, it is not nice when you're scraping month to month and 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 not sure if you can make ends meet. And so I just want to kind of raise the hope maybe of some some of your listeners. This may speak to one or two people who just think it's not possible for them. I'm, I'm here to tell you that it is. And you just got to start. And even if you don't see the progress initially, wait five to 10 years and you'll be amazed at how far you've come. Yep.
0: Completely agree. I love that. And uh, yeah, it's really... Like you said, money's not the most important thing, but I think our time and our health are two of our mm-hmm. most important assets. And it becomes a lot easier to take control of those when you got the money game somewhat figured out.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's true. And and I'm glad you mentioned health because that is now my new thing. Is um, That's why I found your podcast and through some of the guys I, I know through the mastermind I'm in as well, can, um, pointed me in your direction and recommended you as a guy you have to listen to ryan's input on on health and stuff so we're really enjoying being at the beginning of that journey now but excited for what this year looks like um on the health journey for sure i love it well this has been awesome
0: james in, in closing where can people go to find more about what you're up to
1: yeah so my my company website is uh com h-a-r-w-o-o-d com and I have just launched a new online brand. Um, you can mostly find me on Instagram at the moment, but also YouTube. But the Instagram is at the biz buying Brit, uh, the biz buying Brit. And so I'm posting content there, trying to do that daily, just to try to educate people about the opportunity that is out there for buying small businesses. I would love to connect with any of you on there, and yeah, look forward to uh to speaking more. And thank you, Ryan, to have me for having me on today. It's been a an honor, and it's been great chatting with you. Likewise, brother. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's
0: episode. If you found it helpful, please share it along to anyone else you believe it can serve. You can submit your own question to be answered on the show by going to RyanKennedyHealth.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as possible with this information. Please note the information depicted in this episode is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine.